You're listening to F1 Coffee Corner, Full Beans Podcast. I'm your host as always, Terry. There is no transfer deadlines here. There's no management moves. It's still me in the kitchen with my coffee, bringing you the latest F1 news. Now, 2023. That means we are now just over 50 days away from cars returning on track. We know we've got car launches coming in February. We know that all of the moves have pretty much happened now. So any team principal, any driver are now pretty much in their new roles. Um, Fred Vassell was the last one for Ferrari. He's now taken over. We are expecting some changes to Ferrari's management team later on this week and early part of next week. Um, I'll obviously keep you updated for that. While I'm saying that, shameless plug here, but if you do want the latest daily news, head on over to my TikTok page, F1 Coffee Corner, obviously, where you'll get the latest daily news straight into your inbox by hitting that follow button and hitting that like button. Likewise, if you like the podcast, another shameless plug, please hit the subscribe button, please hit the rating, please leave a review, please leave a question or comment if you want one. And likewise, as I've said before, if anybody's got any topics they want to see discussed, get in contact, we can drop on there because I'm really keen for this podcast to be a representation of the fans. I'm keen that the fans get their views across and the topics that are important to them. So not driven by mainstream media, not driven by what people want us to talk about, but actually what we want to discuss. So if you have got any topics that you want here to discuss, let me know, see if I can get them on there. Obviously, like I've said before, once the races start, it'll be a lot easier because we'll be discussing races and the news becomes more and more frequent. So that makes it a bit more easier. So 2023, what do we start off this year with? I thought it'd be pretty pertinent to start off this year with a review of the new rules that come into play for 2023. There are some rules come into play and I thought it would be a lot better to kick off this year with just a recap of what those rules are, what they mean to the teams, what guys they've come in because some of them are health and safety, some of them are health and safety and probably shouldn't be and some of them are just um, not really you know, important for now but will be for the future. So without further ado, let's sit down, strap in and give this week's episode some full beans. So in terms of the rule changes, the first one that really came into play was the sprint races. Um, They still leave a lot to be desired for, I think, but F1 see the benefit of it. They obviously see it from a commercial benefit point of view in the sense of you get three days of racing, effectively. You get the qualifying on Friday, you get the sprint race on the Saturday and then you get the main Grand Prix on a Sunday. So from a commercial point of view, it makes the tracks a lot more commercially viable to F1 as as a selling commodity. So that's obviously one of the reasons why they did it. Now, last season, they wanted more sprint races, but they couldn't because of the budget cut that was in place. So the teams couldn't agree on what budget they should have for a sprint race because it obviously costs more money to run the cars during a sprint race weekend. So they've now decided on what it is. It's an extra $300,000 per race, um, per sprint race, that is. And that budget's been agreed, and we now have six sprint races for next year. Now, those sprint races are going to be Azerbaijan, the Austrian Grand Prix, the Belgian Grand Prix, the Quattro Grand Prix, the USA Grand Prix, and finally the Brazilian Grand Prix. And I'm not sure about what you think, but I'm not convinced on those venues, if I'm honest. I'm not overly against the sprint races because they do add a bit of excitement. I suppose my problem, my personal problem with the sprint races is you don't seem to get a lot of overtaking on the actual sprint race on the Saturday itself because teams are very cautious, drivers are very cautious. They seem to not want to take the risk because of obviously damaging the car, because obviously a mistake will put them towards the back of the, the grid for the race on Sunday. 
So they are becoming a bit of a procession, if you like, unless your driver with a point to prove. So if your driver who's had a bad qualifying for whatever reason and you need to come back up through the pack to get a good grid spot, then actually the um the sprint races have proven quite successful. But if you're one of the people towards the front end of the grid, it tends to be more of a procession around the track. So I'm still yet to be convinced by them. I think they could have chosen better venues, if I'm honest. I'm not convinced on some of the venues for them. Some of them make perfect sense. Um, Baku doesn't really make sense for me as a sprint race. I can't really see it as a massive overtaking spot. Okay, you've got long straights down the back, but apart from that, there isn't that many opportunities to overtake, you know, apart from the first long straights and the, the first couple of DRS zones. So I'm not convinced that Baku is a good sprint race. Belgium makes sense. The Austrian Grand Prix makes sense. And, um, you know, USA... Mm, again, I'm not convinced that Austin is the best place for a sprint race. I would like to have seen like a Monza or a Silverstone, if I'm honest, as one of the options. But yeah, Brazil itself has proven to be pretty good for sprint races so far. So looking forward to that one. I am a bit intrigued to see how they pan out towards the end of the season, especially if there's a championship at stake, because they are quite weighted towards the back end. So, you know, we've got race 19, 20 and 22 out of potentially 24 races as dedicated sprint races. So actually, there will be some points, some significant points on offer towards the end of the season if the title race happens to be close. So that could, you know, sway the sprint races to making them a bit more exciting if there's a lot of um, constructor positions and drivers' championship positions still to make up and a lot of points on offer. So that might actually play into taking some chances during the sprint races and making for a bit more exciting sprint races. But that is... The first sort of big change to the rules on sprint races. Really intrigued to know your thoughts on this. Really intrigued to know if you're a fan of them. Um, I suppose you'd be a fan if you're going to the track and you're experiencing the Grand Prix weekend because, like I say, you get racing for three days, so why not? But in terms of if you're watching it from home, do you think they add value or do you think it's just a gimmick which Formula 1 could pretty much do without? Let me know what you think. Now, the next change, which you know, is is going to be controversial. And I'm going to put it out there now. I don't agree with it. That is a change to the floor heights of the cars that is coming into play. So we know last season that the team struggled with porpoising. We know it was evident. And the majority of teams struggled with porpoising. Clearly, some struggled more. Clearly, Mercedes were the worst in terms of struggling. Now, the rule changes were announced. Um, there was a slight rule change which came in, I think, just after the summer break, which made a little bit of difference. But the major change was announced that it was coming in for this season, the 2023 season. And originally, the FIA wanted to change the ride height to 25 millimetres. Now, for a Formula 1 car, that is a significant height change on a car to rise it up. A lot of teams actually fought against this and said, no way, that doesn't need to. A lot of the other teams' argument is that they've sorted porpoising out, so it doesn't need any change at all. And for the other teams, they're saying that, you know, maybe if it's only a certain team um, or a certain couple of teams who are struggling with porpoising, that maybe it's their design problem to overcome rather than the FIA stepping in to actually change it. And that the option to run your floor at a greater height is always there. And if running your floor at a lower height increases the porpoising, then it's your responsibility as a team to look at the health and safety of the driver and run that car higher. And if, you know, you lose performance because of that, then 
well, tough shit, really. That's that's your your loss. That's your design fault. So I kind of agree with that, if I'm honest. Yeah, I think that if you've got a problem with the car, if it only affects a certain number of cars, then it's not a health and safety issue. It's a design issue. So I'm really intrigued to see what this rule change brings. Now, as I said, it was originally going to be 25 millimetres. That's now been amended to a 15 millimetre rise. And if I'm honest... Mercedes are the big advantage of this. Let's let's all be honest. Mercedes are the ones who are going to gain from a 15mm ride height. And this just might mean that they can keep running with zero side pods. Because all the noise we're hearing from Mercedes is that they're going to run with that, that option. And if I'm honest, I think that the FIA ruling in changing the ride height to 15mm allows them to do this. And if that's the case, that's an unfair advantage for Mercedes. It's one that I'm sure Mercedes are not going to complain about. It's one that if they start winning races, I'm sure a lot of fans won't complain about if you're a Mercedes fan. But from my personal point of view, I think it's wrong. You know, Red Bull have proven that you can run a car at the right height and have little porpoising or certainly not have porpoising that becomes a health and safety issue. So I think Mercedes have been given a get-out-of-jail-free card with a ride height of 15 millimetres. I don't agree. I think they should have looked at the design. I think the FIA should have waited before they went going to with all the changes announced to the regulations on the floors. I think they should have waited and waited and waited. We don't know yet if it's a problem to do with certain tracks, so street tracks, for example, or whether or not it was to do with the teams not understanding the cars fully. Because as you look towards the end of the season, either the adjustment that was made after summer break certainly helped, or the teams got got better at you know compensating for the porpoise because with the exception of maybe one or two races in the second half of the season, we certainly didn't see a lot of poor position. We certainly didn't see a lot of drivers suffering back who style like they did before. So I'm not convinced on this one. I think I think this is a it feels a bit like a a favour is the word I'd call it to Mercedes. And what will be interesting to see will be how the Red Bull coats with having his ride height hired by 15 millimetres. And if that's going to affect the performance of the new Red Bull car significantly or not, especially with their wind tunnel reduction from their cost cut penalty, it's going to be really hard for them to see what the effects this does. But yeah, let me know what you think about ride heights and the first rule change, because ultimately it's it's in there. We can't complain about it. Well, we can complain about it, but we've got to accept it, I suppose is what I'm saying. Not convinced by it. Be interesting to see what it does. Be interesting to see if it brings the field together. Be interesting to see if certain cars suddenly become a lot more competitive, a lot more closer because of it. Um, and I suppose what will be interesting to see will be how much the cars were being compensated with adjustments to ride heights to combat porpoising rather than the aerodynamics of the car. So let me know what you think about this one. Like I said, I think it's a favourite to Mercedes. I think they've been given a get-out-of-jail-free card. I think they're going to reap the benefits of it. And I think it's going to put them in a lot more competitive position than what they were last season and allow them to carry on with the design theme of zero side pods that they're currently doing. The next one that comes in is around um, Joe's accident that happened at um, Silverstone. You'll remember the first lap crash, first corner crash, where he obviously went straight across the, the tarmac through gravel in, into the wall there. And the main reason for this rule change is to do with the roll bar that was on top. What they found was that, in a nutshell, the roll bar didn't do its job and put Joe in some serious jeopardy. Luckily, it didn't matter because he walked away unscathed, but it basically just snapped off and was useless and served no purpose whatsoever, which, as anybody knows, if you've got a safety feature on a Formula 1 car, it can't do that. 
they've introduced measures to make it a lot more robust and make it withstand a lot more force now it's now got a withstanding impact of 15 g's and it's also got to withstand that impact on a forward and a backwards movement so what they're saying is you've got to be able to almost press it from all sides before it snaps off to 15 g there's not that many crashes where your your roll bar on the top will not come off so that's the main one with that one it's quite a simple change it's clearly a health and safety change it's not going to make a huge amount of difference to the aerodynamics of the team because it looks like the specifications haven't changed in the sense of um, the size of the roll hoop it's just changed in the sense of much more like the halo it's got to be a lot more stronger and a lot more able to withstand the g-force so one which totally agree with they got lucky with the accident at Silverstone and thankfully no one got hurt from it and hopefully this new design will make sure that you know if anything happens in the future that the drivers are safe which is ultimately the main thing next one which is a pretty insignificant rule change is around the wing mirrors and they are just making them larger you would have seen last season a couple of teams were testing them during the fp sessions and they're just made to be a bit bigger i'm not sure how much formula one drivers are using their mirrors i'm not sure how much drivers actually look at them certainly some drivers don't i'm not going to name names for fear of being stoned alive but there are certain drivers who forget they're there and maybe having bigger mirrors will be able to see them a bit more closely but yeah it's designed to improve the blind spot visibility so anyone who drives will know that obviously in a formula one car you can't look over your shoulder down to the right or down to the left where your blind spot is so the whole point behind it is that they can see a bit more clearer when they're when they're challenging wheel to wheel and hopefully stop similar collisions that happen when there's close racing because ultimately we all want close racing but without a collision so not too sure on the specification in terms of what size they they were and what size they've gone to just that they're now slightly bigger and to increase the blind spots the next one is around fuel temperature now i'm not gonna sit here and claim to know a lot about fuel temperature in formula one cars i mean i'm like most people i go to the the petrol station i put my gas in and that's pretty much it done i don't check the temperature of it all i know is generally your cars run better when it's oil fuel etc etc is at a decent temperature so i imagine it's got a lot to do with that i'm sure someone will um you know fill in the blanks in terms of what that actually means to a formula one car i'm sure scientifically it means a lot to a formula one car but i don't know and in terms of what it means now the beginning of the season last year we saw a lot of issues actually with fuel and fuel pumps and um, red bull especially suffered red bull powertrains did they suffered the alpha towers suffered i think it was in bahrain where it was not just the red bulls the alpha towers actually went to fuel line problems what they called them which is to do with the fuel temperature now 2022 the rules were that your fuel must not be colder than 20 degrees celsius what they've now done in 2023 is the temperature must now not be more than 10 degrees below what the current ambient temperature is so it allows for a lot more movement depending on what the temperature of the track is rather than a set temperature what it was last year if there's cold weather then they've got an overall minimum temperature of 10 degrees celsius to apply so if it is cold then you can't have any different bar 10 degrees celsius and what they've said is the way that the ambient temperature will be decided is it's going to be recorded one hour before a practice session or three hours before the race and it's going to be recorded by a weather service that is designated by the FIA who will then communicate out to the teams you know exactly what temperature your fuel can be and will make sure that the temperatures in the cars abide by those now we've seen in the past that the FIA do take issues with fuel actually quite stringent 
Um, we've had like Sebastian Vettel lose a race because of not having enough fuel in there to measure. So it is something they do look at quite closely. It is something they do take very seriously. So whilst it may not sound like a significant rule change, it might well be in terms of how it affects the performance of the engines. Bear in mind, the engines are the same engines because we're in engine freeze. So if they were designed originally with you know, a set temperature and now they've got variable temperatures, we may see some issues again with the fuel and with engines itself. But as it stands, that's rule changes. It's going to be set by the FIA. They're going to be told what they're going to add. In cold weather, it's 10 degrees is the minimum. In all other times, it can't be any more than 10 degrees below what the actual ambient temperature is. What it means by ambient temperature, I assume it means trap temperature, which is what they record anyway. So yeah, that's the next one that the FIA have introduced. So coming on to the rule change around tyres and qualifying. Now, this is definitely a gimmick. There's no reason why this is in here apart from it's just a gimmick. It's designed to reduce tyre weightage. Those of you who have followed Formula 1 for a long time will know there's a mass amount of tyre weightage that goes into Formula 1. They take tyres to the track. They take all of the tyres to all of the tracks. Um, yeah, they do take wet tyres. I know we didn't see them last year. I know you probably didn't think they did, but they do take them. They even take them to the desert, believe it or not. But yeah, they take all of the tyres to all of the tracks and this is designed around the weightage. What they're introducing in a couple of races, a couple of qualifying sessions is a test. And this test is designed to reduce the weightage of tyres. So during a race weekend, during these two events, they haven't announced what events they are, but your tyre usage is going to go from 13 sets of tyres down to 11 sets of tyres. And with that is a stipulation of what tyres are going to be used in what qualifying session. So what it means is during Q1, you will use the hard tyres. So everybody will go out on the hard tyres. Now, it doesn't say in the rules whether or not those tyres can be a scrub set or whether or not they are a fresh set. So I imagine you can still run a scrub set if you want, but they have to be a hard tyre compound. In Q2, they will be a medium tyre compound. And in Q3, they will be the soft tyre compound. Um, obviously, if it rains, there will be um, no rules on what tyre compounds to use. They will switch into intermediates and wets as they currently do. But that's for two races next year. We're going to see Q3, Q2 and Q1 all running on different tyres. Be interesting to see, especially if you're a team who in the past struggled to get your tyres up to temperature. Mercedes were a team who struggled. Haas were actually quite good at getting theirs up to temperature, as was proven in Brazil last year. So it'd be really interesting to see what actually effect this makes on the teams, whether or not they have to do more runs with scrub tyres to get them up to temperature or whether they have to do more of these. We saw it a bit last year where they do a couple of laps, almost like a warm-up and then a warm-up lap before the flying lap rather than a warm-up and flying lap straight away. So the next one's going to be oh, the dreaded engine grid penalty. Oh my God, I don't even know where to start on this one. Who remembers, was it Monza last year where nobody knew where they were starting? Not even the drivers knew where they were starting in terms of starting positions. It is so complicated. And this rule change comes about is in one of the Grand Prix, I can't remember which one it was, but Ferrari were blatantly trying to avoid a penalty by changing the elements of um, Charles Leclerc's car without incurring a penalty. So they were literally swapping out bits by bits and not occurring a penalty. And this is designed to stop that. So I'm going to read through the rule. I'm not going to say I know what it means because I don't, because it's as clear as mud when it comes to what it actually means. So Article 28.3 of the Sporting Regulations now no longer mandates that a driver must start from the back 
if they incur 15 places of grid penalties. Any driver with 15 or fewer grid penalties are filled in based on their results in qualifying. If two drivers end up in the same position with a penalty, the fastest based on their qualifying time is moved forward one place. I still don't know what it means, if I'm honest. It means that they can't try and change all the bits on the grid and get away with a penalty. I'll wait and see for the classification when it comes out. Hopefully make it a bit more quicker. There was a couple of times last year when the classification got changed three or four times, which was just really annoying as a fan to see qualifying come in. I do think long-term there needs to be something done on, certainly if you're going to take an engine penalty and you then qualify like in the top 10 and you take away someone's opportunity to do Q3 itself because you've got a fast car. So we saw a couple of times where you'd get a Ferrari or a Red Bull or a Mercedes qualifying in the top 10, goes into Q3, goes to the back of the grid after qualifying because they took an engine penalty, and someone from Q2 has missed out the opportunity to qualify in Q3. So I don't know how they fix that, but that's certainly something I'd like to see addressed, that if you've got an engine penalty, maybe you're excluded from Q3 even to let someone else have the opportunity to run if you've already said you take an engine penalty maybe that's an answer to it i don't know but i think it needs looking at it's unfair on the teams if someone finishes 11th in q2 doesn't get a chance to take part in q3 and then suddenly that driver then goes to the back of the grid and they're still in 11th when they might have got 7th or 8th or something so that's my personal views on it engine penalties are there i think they need to look at the amount of engines teams have got yeah, we got 23 through 24 races next season. Four engines doesn't feel like enough. And maybe that's half the battle. These strategic engine penalties I don't like, where we see tracks where teams are taking them, knowing that they can bring an engine and blast back through people. You know, Mercedes done it in the past with Brazil. We know Red Bull done it a couple of times with Max's car in terms of engine penalties. I think they did it as far. So it they are strategic engine penalties, as you know, lots of Toto and Christian have alluded to. They have told us that they are designed to put an extra engine in the pool should they need it later on. So they're not even be, being done when an engine's faulty. They're actually being done to add an engine to the pool so they've got an extra engine, which that doesn't feel right. So I do think the whole engine thing needs to be looked at in a bit more detail. The next rule change that's coming into play, it's not really a rule change. It's more of a budget cap change. It's actually designed around the new engines coming into place. And that is that from 2023, the engine department now have a budget cap. So we know that there's a budget cap in place for the teams, as we found out last season with obviously what happened with Aston Martin, Williams and Red Bull and not hitting the cost cap. Now, from this season, there's a budget cap in place for engines. Now, it's not in place, I must stress, for the current engines. So the current engines at the moment are excluded in the cost cap and they will continue to be excluded in the cost cap. So... They, they don't count in any way towards the cost cap. However, there's now a cost cap in place for engines, which is $95 million for 23, 24, and 25. And if you're a new engine supplier, which is Red Bull Powertrains, it's Audi, and I believe it's Honda as well, then you get an extra 10 million for 2023 and 2024, and then an extra 5 million for 2025 season. And then the engine cost cap will be $130 million from 2026 when the new engines come into play. So teams are now having to track what they're spending on. They're having to track how much they spend on development of the engines, which is going to be new to the big teams there. You should just chuck money at it and developing whatever they want. Certainly Mercedes do, Alpine do. They just tend to have a blank check when it comes to engine development. So it'd be interesting to see what a budget cap does in terms of this. It's obviously designed to help new teams coming into sport. It's obviously designed to help 
protect the smaller teams. That concludes my section pretty much on what's changing for 2023. Hope that's been helpful in terms of what's going to be new on the grid next year. A lot of these rules have been muted for quite a while. A lot have been in play for quite a while, but they are now in effect. Like I say, some of them quite significant floor changes. Um, sprint races might be significant in terms of point scoring. Um, the tyre one, I don't think it's going to be significant in terms of qualifying at all. I think it's going to be more of a just see if it actually makes a difference. It might make qualifying a bit closer. It might make it a bit more interesting. But with only two races to choose from, um, I don't think we're going to get enough of it to make a difference on it. And yeah, let me know what you think about the rule changes in there. That brings us nicely into the FIA, F1, Team Bosses, Andretti, Asia Motorsports, and pretty much a collision course that's going on at the moment. By now, you would have all seen the tweet put out by the FIA president around inviting almost like a, a bid for new teams to come in where they come and present a business case to the FIA to say, we should be in Formula 1, here's our business case, we're financially viable, this is why, and can we come and join the grid? Now, the current Concord agreement allows for 12 teams to be in Formula 1. And whilst it allows for 12 teams to come in, there are quite some significant things in the Concord Agreement. Now, the Concord Agreement is pretty much confidential, but there are some things we do know about it. And number one is that the teams need to agree on stuff like this before that it can happen. So it seems, judging by the tweets that we're currently seeing, we've got a good old-fashioned standoff between the FIA and F1 and the team bosses. Now, it looks like F1 are pretty much siding with the team bosses on this one. And they're saying they don't want anyone new to the sport. And it's really hard as a fan to understand why. Because on paper, if you look at certainly the Andretti bid that we've all been hearing so much about. Now, Andretti's been trying to get into the sport for quite a long time now. But their announcement this week that they're teaming up with GM Motors under the Cadillac brand pretty much puts them in a very solid position to come into F1 from a financial point of view two teams combined together are financially damn secure there is no doubt about that so it's not a financial reason why they can't come in the reason that we're getting doesn't really make a lot of sense either so the reason that we're getting to why andretti can't come in is because of the prize money well that's quite simple f1 could just change the prize money and if you're giving the teams more prize money or you're keeping a fairer option but adding teams in so if you're keeping it the same but adding an extra one or two teams to the grid then that's that's a no-brainer. The team's going to sign that. So I don't believe for one minute it's to do with money. There's enough money in Formula 1 to change the, the point scoring before a team enters the sport. We all know a team's got to wait before they enter the sport anyway. So there's enough time to make those changes come into play. So it can't be as simple as that. We've heard Toto talking about what are they going to bring to the sport. And that's a really tough one because we also know that they're not going to bring an engine because they're not making their own engine. So even though they're teaming up with GM Motors, it looks like they're going to have an Alpine engine, by all accounts from what we're hearing, and it's going to be rebranded. Um, very similar to the Honda engine being rebranded as Red Bull Powertrain engines. So they're not even bringing an engine supplier. Now, what we don't know is, do they want to come in before 2026 and use an Alpine engine then develop their own, which is, of course, one option they've got with the new eggs in place. But to develop your own engine for 2026... One, you would have had to have done the expression of interest by now. And two, you would already be working on it. Because as we've seen, a lot of teams already fired up their 2026 engine. So if you haven't even started on it, you're well beyond. So that's not going to happen. So I do believe that we're going to see, you know, a rebranded current engine coming into the Andretti team if they make the grid. And I don't know about anyone else's view, but surely more cars and more competition is good for the sport. It means more jobs. It means more drivers on the track. It means... Yeah, hopefully more overtakes, better racing. I can't understand the objection behind it, apart from 
that teams either one don't want to undress you because they're a bit scared of what they're going to bring in the past that would have made a lot more sense because without the cost cap you could have come in like mercedes did and just chucked money at a team and you know you could have just chucked a load of money at the team and got it right but you can't do that with a cost cap in play that don't make sense because any team that's new to formula one is still going to have to abide by the cost cap and there are no concessions for a new supplier for a cost cap increase. So a new supplier coming in is going to have to abide by the cost cap, same as everybody else. So you're not going to gain an advantage that way. It's not going to happen that way. I don't understand why that's a, a stumbling block. You're not going to have a team coming in and chucking a blank check at it because they can't. They're not allowed to. So I suppose, you know, what is the stumbling block? There, there doesn't seem to be a logical one. It seems that the FIA and F1 are getting their, their kicks out of arguing with each other once again. It's it's very much like a school playground incident where, you know, the FIA are the headmaster and they turn around to, the F, to F1 and say, you know, we want you to do this and F1 rebel and then they get sent to the headmaster's office and then, you know, have to deal with the punishment that way. That's how it feels at the moment. It feels like F1 are naturally taking the team side, but it also feels like they're doing it deliberately to go against the FIA and to go against um, the FIA president's wishes. So it'd be interesting to see how this one pans out because the FIA have said we can go up to 12 teams. F1 have come out and said only if we agree to it. And I can guarantee that for the teams to agree on it, there needs to be some compromise. So we have heard about the pay and in fee. For those of you who don't know it, any team entering the sport has to pay 200 million dollars to be divided by the 10 teams as a entrance fee and that's designed to combat the loss of prize money so there's even a combat in there there's a compensation package in there for a new supplier to come in now the teams are saying that when the concord agreement was first signed it was before covid here and that we're now in a different situation financially f1 are making a lot more money from the teams and the sport financially and they want a bigger slice of the pie so they're they're saying that that 200 million dollars is actually now outdated and should be more the other thing you gotta remember is we're about to enter negotiations for the new concord agreement the current one runs out in 2025 so for 2026 we're gonna have to have a new one in place and we also know that for a concord agreement to be in place all the teams have to sign so with that in mind the teams are obviously going to use it for a bit of leverage they're going to use it to get what they want out of it they're going to use it to get the best deal for them as well and whilst the teams come together to sign things like the concord agreement ultimately they're out for themselves and that's what all this is about they want to make sure that they're represented fairly you've got lots of ferrari want to make sure they keep their special payments and want to make sure they don't lose their veto you've got the other teams wanting to make sure that they keep the slice of the pie that they've been promised as well and by using these situations to their advantage to negotiate the Concord Agreement is what I feel is happening here. I feel that the teams are using this as a basis for their 2026 Concord Agreement negotiations. And that's what this is really about. Not adding a team to the grid, not that the fact that it's Andretti. I suppose the feedback we're seeing is the only team that's happy to see them coming in at the moment would be Alpine, which would make sense because they're going to be their engine supplier. So let me know what you think about this one in the comments. Do you feel we should have more teams? Do you feel that actually, as long as a team can afford it, they should be in Formula One? And the cost cap, ultimately, the cost cap is designed to help teams stay in Formula One and stop them from going bust. And this does that. So, yeah, let me know what you think about this one in the comments. More teams in Formula One, is it for you? Or do you want to just see the established teams as they are currently staying in Formula One? Now, the next thing to talk about is Williams, really, because we touched a bit on Williams when we did the team principal moves. But it seems like they're in a bit of a pickle. They're in a lot of trouble. 
And the reasons for this is really simple. They haven't announced either a team principal or technical director. We know that Capito went. We know the technical director went at the same time. We know that ultimately it looks like they were pushed. We know that Bobby Nanny should be a replacement in pace working on the new car. And the fact there's been no announcement is really worrying. We know they've lost seven out of 20-odd sponsors. Some of those were expected because they were to do with the Latifi. We totally understand that. But there are some others in there that have gone. And significantly, that might not make too much of a problem for 2023 because they got their um, rocket sponsorship deal compensation, as you remember. However, it's certainly going to impact the team going forward if they can't attract new sponsors. And ultimately, you can't attract new sponsors without team principals, without technical directors, and without results. And whilst Williams are a fantastic name in Formula 1, their heritage is amazing. Their recent performances suggest that they're a team massively on the decline. So who are you going to entice into this role? Especially if you're someone with Formula 1 knowledge, are you going to take the poison chalice that is currently Williams? We know their owners will pretty much be looking for a sale at some point. These consortiums that buy these teams and buy these businesses, ultimately, that's what they buy them for. They buy them to make money. They buy them to run them on a shoestring budget to make as much profit as possible, to make them profitable, to then sell them on to somebody else. That's what these companies do. That's what they're there for. And nothing I've seen coming out of Williams is convinced me any different to that is what is happening with Williams. They're being stripped to the bear. They're being made to look profitable, ready to be sold to somebody to basically make as much money out of them as they can. Now, I've seen people muting various takeovers. So we've heard Porsche being muted as one. We've heard even Andretti being muted as another one. I suppose the concerns I've got with a takeover deal for Williams is, is twofold, really. Number one, I don't want to lose the Williams name from the grid. I was really scared when Claire Williams put Williams up for sale that actually we were going to lose Williams from the grid. We've lost too many over recent years. Too many big names in Formula 1 have gone whilst they've been rebranded and rehashed to somebody else because they've been taken over. And I personally don't want to see that happen. I want to see Williams on the grid in some form whatsoever. And the second concern I've got is if you sell them to somebody like, for example, Porsche or Andretti, if you then move the facilities, you're then closing the grow factory down. And whilst you're closing a factory in Oxford that's got an amount, amount of experience, amounts amount of history and heritage, you're also putting at risk a lot of jobs. And if you move that abroad, that's a lot of people in and around that area with a long service history who are potentially out of a job. And in the past, they probably would have gone to another Formula 1 team. But with the cost cap in place, you can't go out and recruit, you know, sort of ad hoc anymore. You have to be careful on your recruitment because it's in your budget. So whereas in the past, people would have just picked up good people. Now that might not be the case. You know, we've heard of teams letting people go because of the cost cap. So if you close a whole factory in Oxford, that's a lot of people, a lot of experience going out there who, who are not going to have somewhere to go and not going to have a job. And if it's moved abroad, Yes, you recreate those jobs in the other country, but from a personal point of view, I would like to see Williams stay in Formula 1 and I'd like to see the Grove factory still producing Formula 1 cars. However, they do need some help. And I'm really struggling to see who they're going to employ as a team principal unless they pull a rabbit out of the hat here. There's no one who swings mind. The likes of Bonotto is on gardening leave. We've heard that Friar send that gardening leave to 12 months from six months, so he's not coming anywhere soon. And in terms of available vacant team principals, there is not a lot around at the moment in who spring to mind to take on the Williams role. So with that in play, the longer this goes on, the more at risk they are this season. 
They've got no no technical director. They've got no team principal. That means they've got no direction. I don't care what you say. If you're taking those key personnel out of a team, that development of that car is stifled. And Williams are a team who can't afford that. They can't afford another season at the back. They can't afford another mishap of like they've had for the past couple of seasons. They need results. And ultimately, their car last year was great in a straight line, but their aero package was shocking because that's what cost them. It was the aero package. The actual design of the car in terms of straight line speed was brilliant, as we saw in some of the speed traps. But in terms of the actual package, it was rubbish. So Williams really needs to do something and do something fast. They need to appoint someone. They need to appoint someone who's ready to hit the floor running. And they need to get them in and they need to get them in now. They need to pacify the fans. They need to pacify the sponsors. And they need to pacify the development of the car. And the only way to do that is to get someone in who's got a clear goal in mind. Someone who can come in and go, this is what I want. This is how we're going to do it. And it starts now. It starts today. Because otherwise, we are going to be seeing the end of Williams. We are going to be seeing this team steeped in history, heritage, go to the wall. Unless somebody steps in and takes ownership of Williams. Because at the moment... Nobody is taking ownership of that team. They are faceless corporate management hiding in offices over in America who are not communicating with the fans, not communicating with sponsors, and it seems like not communicating with the team. And it's it's a travesty to think that a joint of Formula One has come to this. It's a travesty to think that this team that Sir Frank Williams built out of nothing is faced with this extinction because that's what this is this is extinction for williams this is now or never this is the time to give the job to to somebody now that could be someone upcoming that could be someone who may not have the formula one experience it just needs to be someone with a passion for formula one it needs to be someone with a passion for williams it needs to be someone who knows what it means to get a car on the grid someone who knows what it means to see that Williams logo on a car. Do you know what it means when you walk through the factory with all of those cars, all of those championship winning cars, to know what this team needs to get back on track. And what it needs is a clear plan. It needs someone to come in to review where they are with the 2023 Challenger. It needs someone to make some instant changes to that 2023 car to make sure it's competitive, to get some points. It needs someone to get control of the commercial team to go out and get some sponsors, because ultimately they can. They've got a massive market now with Logan Sargent in America. It's not hard. Get the commercial team, get them out there, get them getting sponsors, Get the financial security done for the team and work on the car. Appoint a technical director who can steer the team. Yo, bring back some like Paddy Lauer if you have to. Bring them back into the team. They can't do no worse than having nobody at all. Get out there. Get your face out there. Get talking to the fans. Get people excited about Williams again. Get people excited about you know investing in the team. Got a great driver in Alex Albon. Got a good upcoming driver with a huge commercial potential in America in Logan Sargent. Loads going for the team. Great factory. Great team of people. Wake up, Williams, and smell the coffee because time's ticking on, on this fantastic team. And the owners should be ashamed of how they're treating the team and how they're treating Formula One unless they've got a master plan that we're not yet, yeah, that we don't yet know. If they have, I'll hold my hands up and say brilliant if it comes off. But as it sounds, Williams have no master plan. Williams have no direction. Williams are in trouble and we need Williams on the grid 
more than we need the likes of Andretti coming in. We don't need a takeover. We don't need a rebrand. We don't need someone coming in and calling it someone else. We need Williams still on the grid. Yeah, I grew up watching Williams cars and it hurts to say that what they've come to. It hurts to see them at the back of the grid like they are. I've got some massive, massive, massive memories of Williams. Yeah, sat with my dad watching them. Yeah, you've got the Nigel Mansell cars. You've, you've got the Damon Hill cars. You've got the David Coulthard. You've got the travesty that happened with, yeah, Ayrton Senna. Williams cannot be left to Ross like they are. Just come on. Come on, owners. Wake up. Let's, let's, let's get this team going because it can get going. It's been proven with Haas. Okay, you might have to write a season off, but if you've got a clear direction, you can get this car competitive, get going, and I promise you, you'll make more money from it. I promise you, if you're Leonie Williams and you happen to listen to this podcast, I'm telling you now, get someone who knows what they talk about in Formula 1 in place of your team. Get a technical director who knows what they talk about in terms of car development. Give them the tools. Give them the budget they need. Give them the cost cap allowance the 130 million whatever it is now let them develop the car give them a season to write stuff off and i promise you you'll make more money off it i promise you they will get it right they will get this team moving they will get points on the board and they will get williams moving back at the pack and you can sell it then sell it to whoever as long as you keep the williams name take your money and just go with it because it's clear what you're trying to do to Williams and it's wrong. You're trying to break them down to sell them off at a dirt cheap price or, well, not a dirt cheap price, I'd say. You, you're trying to drive them down to run it at a dirt cheap cost, but make a massive profit off it. And okay, that's probably my Williams invite for the season out. I'm not getting the car launch. Um, I'm probably going to be kicked out the factory if I ever appear there. But if, you, if you're struggling, Williams, my, my phone's always on. My emails are open. Give us a call. I'll come and do the team principal job. Or I'll certainly do the commercial manager job and I'll get you some sponsorship deals. That's for sure. You know, there's loads of platforms you can get out there and get sponsorship deals. So if you're Williams and you're listening, you're not going to be. But if you are, give me a call. We'll sort this out. But yeah, Williams, I really want to see them make some moves and make some moves fast. And after I really passed in defence of Williams, that brings pretty much this week's podcast to a close. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the content. Let me know what you want to talk about next week. Like I said, I really wanted to just, you know, recap on the rules. I wanted to recap on what was coming to 2023. I wanted to touch on Williams because it's really personal. I wanted to touch on Andretti Motorsport because that's really prominent at the moment. We know there's going to be some changes to some team personnel. Hopefully by the time the next podcast come out, we can go through those. Hopefully by then we might even have some Williams appointments. And... Yeah, all that's left for me to say is I really appreciate you listening. I really hope you enjoy the podcast. If you can, like it, share it, subscribe, all those things that you can do to help the podcast, then that would be amazing. And all that's left to say is have a fantastic week. And when we talk next week, we're going to be closer to cars coming back on track. Have a great week, everyone. I'll speak to you soon. <laughs>